He wants you to think that your ancestor was some monkey that is now well developed into this high form. That's not what the Word of God says. It is impossible to be a theistic evolutionist and to be true to the Word of God. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today we come to the conclusion of our message entitled, Man's Biggest Problem. Our text is in Romans 3.23, and so far we have seen that this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is a universal text in that the word all means all, and that there is an unassailable chasm between men's best qualities and the holiness of God. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy looks at the undeniable status in the words, have sin. Now we often overlook or skip the word have, but it is just as important as the next word, sinned. Have sinned actually is one word in Greek that we translate with two uh, English words. And the verb is interesting as God originally inspired it in the Greek New Testament. The thought is, in the past, All have sinned. There are absolutely no exceptions. Now, without wanting to sound like a know-it-all, let me just say, first of all, that most of our English translations, not all of them, but most of them, are very precise. They are a very accurate rendering of what God originally inspired, and we have much to be grateful for. However, with that said, if you've ever worked from one language to another, then you know that sometimes when you move from the tongue you are trying to translate into the receptor language, that in every single instance, if you're trying to do a word-for-word relationship, you can't always communicate the exact same truth unless you begin to paraphrase and amplify and explain and get into detail. And this is one of those verses where that is true. Now listen to me, follow carefully. There are some sections in the Word of God that I tell people when they read it just in their native tongue, assuming it's not, say, Greek, as this passage was inspired in, it's like looking at television on a 20-inch screen. But when you read this verse in the Greek New Testament, it's like reading it on a 65-inch TV with stereo and surround sound. Now on both TVs, you can see the same picture. But on the big screen, surround sound TV, you can pick up some of the fine nuances. And sometimes, most of the time it is not true, but on occasion it is true that sometimes in the original there is a nuance that God wants to bring out that doesn't always come out in English. This is why the Protestant reformers felt like it was essential that we study the languages. Luther said the languages are the sheath in which the sword of the Spirit is contained. And so God sovereignly had this passage written in Greek. Now again, let me emphasize that God the Holy Spirit can help us to understand any passage in our English Bible. However, on occasion, it's certainly helpful to know Greek because it can bring out the richness of the text. Let me give you an example. For instance, in English, we have tenses. Uh, We have past tense, present tense, in future tense. So does in Greek, so does in every languages. But not only in Greek are there tenses dealing with the time of time, there's what they have in Greek verbs called aspect that deals with the kind of time. 
For instance, if you were here on Wednesday night, we were looking at Ephesians 5, 18. And it says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to, you know, reckless behavior, dissipation, a loss of control, but be filled with the Spirit. And the verb there, filled, is the kind of verb in the original that is not speaking of a once and for all experience, but an ongoing experience. You could translate it or paraphrase it, keep being filled moment by moment with the Spirit. Now again, let me say, don't ever be intimidated by someone who knows Greek and Hebrew just because you do not. But let me also say, neither criticize those who do. The reason we are enjoying an accurate translation of the Word of God in our own tongue this morning is because there were some men who were willing to sweat bullets and learn Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic to give it to us. But understand, while a Greek scholar may read the Bible in living color, if he doesn't apply it, he may be a babe in Christ. So it doesn't mean that he's more spiritual, where you can have someone else who can only read it in their tongue, but they obey what they know, and they're far more mature than the linguists. Now, the verb that is used here, translated have sinned, deals not just with uh, particular acts of sin, but an event. There are different nuances of the aorist tense, and this is what linguists call an historical aorist. Now, stay with me. He's describing here not just deeds of sin, but he's describing our sin nature. He's not just describing sins plural, those acts of sin, but sin singular, the nature from which those acts come. He's referring to a decision in the past that all of humanity has made. He's going to describe it when we come to Romans, the fifth chapter, where he uses the identical aorist verb, and he will say, therefore, just as through one man's sin, just through one man, uh, just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Everybody originated out of Adam. Now, the evolutionist wants to blur that and deny that. He wants to think, tell you out of the glue into the zoo that became you. He wants you to think that your ancestor was some monkey that is now well developed into this high form. That's not what the Word of God says. It is impossible to be a theistic evolutionist and to be true to the Word of God. No, God teaches in Adam was every man, woman, boy, or girl who would ever live, such that when Adam sinned, all sinned. Now, when we come to Romans 5, we'll explain that because that's when Paul explains it. But I want you to see that Adam is the fountainhead of the human race. And no matter how far down the river you are, whether it was a year or 10,000 years, it hasn't changed one bit. We're all born with a sin nature. And so a young child doesn't need to be taught to lie. He needs to be able to speak the truth and taught that. Why? Because by nature, he's a little sinner. He's a little selfish person. He wants his own way. It comes naturally. Question, is an apple tree an apple tree because it bears apples? Or does it bear apples because it's an apple tree? It bears apples because its nature is that of an apple tree. And because our nature is that of fallen sinful people, so we sin. We recently had another bird's nest, actually two, in our garage. And they build them every year on the porch or next to the garage. And we always love to, to watch them. And it was fun to watch this mother hatch her eggs and these little birds to be born and immediately begin to chirp. And they began to chirp without the mother giving them chirping lessons. 
She didn't come and say, now listen, if you want a worm, chirp and I'll bring you a worm. No, instinctively they chirped. And then we saw these same birds get pushed out by the mother and she didn't give them flying lessons. Instinctively, they began to fly. Well, just as a bird chirps by virtue of its nature, so we sin by virtue of our nature. Just as a bird loves worms, so by nature we love to sin. Just as a bird never needs to be taught to fly, neither do we need to be taught to sin. No, our acts of sin just reveal what we are by nature. And so Paul here is describing the nature of man. The thought is, for all have the nature of a sinner. For all have the nature of their father. Now, even if you don't understand that, and wait till we come to Romans 5 and let Paul explain it to you, let Scripture interpret Scripture, even if you don't understand that, you can understand this, that by nature, by choice, by activity, everyone in this room, everyone in the sound of my voice, with the exception of the Lord Jesus, has committed acts of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, don't get lost in that linguistic farce. I don't want you to miss the point. The word sin here is an interesting word. It's found in the New Testament as a verb, it's found as a noun, and it's found as an adjective. When it's used as a verb, um, speaking of the action of sinning, it refers to someone who, by what he has done, has missed the mark. When it's used as a noun, which is the uh, product of what the sinning does, we call it sin, it refers to an activity or an action that misses the mark. And when it's used of a person as an adjective, it describes who we are, people who miss the mark. And so whether as a verb, whether as a noun, whether as an adjective, it means the same thing in every instance. It means to miss the mark. Now remember, the Greek of the New Testament is Koine Greek, common Greek. Paul didn't use a high, sophisticated kind of Greek. God inspired him to write in Koine Greek, in common Greek. And in common Greek, in the first century, it was either used of an archer who had missed the target or someone who had wandered from a known path. You would say that they were a sinner or they had sinned. And so God wants to make it very clear here that all of us have sinned. We may want to deny it. We may want to suppress it, but it is true. I remember when I was a student in college and I used to mail pages of Scripture to people in the Soviet Union because most of them had no Bible. And there would be Christians uh, with the organization I was with who would go in in the summer and they would get into Russia on different kinds of visas and they would just copy names and addresses of people. And then they would bring them back to the States and, and then we would take those names and addresses and we would mail a single page of Scripture to get by those commies. Well, what did the communists say in regards to sin? This is what the Russian dictionary said for so many years. They defined sin in this way. An archaic word denoting the transgression of a mythical divine law. (laughs) That's what they said. Listen, they may believe that, and there are communists, and there's still some billion of them on the earth out of the two billion Chinese people, nearly. There's a whole lot that believe that. You can deny it. It doesn't change its truth. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Suppose um, I've stacked up this many good deeds in my life, and uh, Dave down here has done this many good deeds. You might come along and say, well, you know, Dave's done more good deeds than Pastor Carl. I I think he's going to make it into heaven. 
Somebody else might say, well, I don't know. Look at Pastor Larry. Pastor Larry's better than David. Now Dave's starting to look like a lowlife. Uh, look at all that he's done. And then somebody else says, oh, forget Pastor Larry. Look at Mother Teresa. Look at Dr. King. Look at the Holy Father, as Catholics call the Pope. Now they're super religious. Now us, you know, all, all of us look like a bunch of reprobates. But then in comes Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Now you see there's a level playing field that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now some people think that the harlot, the liar, the prostitute, the drunkard, the murderer needs the gospel. Yes, they do, but so don't you. Because next to Jesus Christ, we all fall short of that righteousness. Sometimes I will hear a Christian say, oh, he really needs to be saved. As if somehow in their theology, they think that person is more wicked, more lost than they or somebody else they know. Like in their theology, that person is more dead. When Paul describes humanity, he says that humanity is dead in their trespasses and sins. Dead is dead. There's not some people who are deader than others. There are some people who, from a human perspective, they may be at the lowest point on the face of the earth, at, uh, they're in Israel at the Dead Sea, and then there are other people who may be at the highest place in the face of the earth on top of Mount Everest, but neither of them can touch the stars. They have the same problem. They fall short of the glory of God. They are equally in need of a Savior and so of those people who were outwardly religious, Jesus said, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get in before they do. Not because the prostitute was in greater need, but because she saw her need. She saw that she was indeed a sinner and fallen in need of a Savior. All right? He goes on beyond the universal verdict and this undeniable status to describe an impossible chasm. Look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short. Because of this undeniable offense of having sinned, causing us to fall short, there's this impossible chasm. Now it's interesting. The words fall short, again, is one word in the Greek New Testament, hustereo. And it's used in different ways, in different contexts, at least translated in different ways. Let me read it to you out of Hebrews 11, when he speaks of the men and women of the faith. He said they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute. Same exact word used in Romans 3 that we translate fall short being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. You could translate, I suppose, Romans 3 in the sense, for all have sinned and are destitute of the glory of God. In the first century, the word that hustereo, that we translate fall short, was used of a farmer who missed the planting time. And because he missed the planting time, he missed the crop. And so in that sense, you could say all have sinned and missed the season of the glory of God. It was used in the financial realm of someone who had gone bankrupt. And so you could say, for all of sin and are bankrupt of the glory of God. It was used in the first century of someone who was uneducated and could not read. And so in that sense, you could say, for all of sin and are illiterate of the glory of God. Let me see if I can illustrate. Suppose I asked everyone in this auditorium to stand on the top of their seats. Whether you're up there in the stadium seating or down here on the front rows. 
And I said, on the count of three, I want you to jump to this platform on which I am standing. Listen, it doesn't matter how hard you may jump, even if your eternal destiny depended upon it, it would be impossible for anyone to jump all the way to this platform. That is the thought that Paul is trying to put before us, that there is an impossible chasm because God is so holy and it gets worse, that leaves an unattainable goal, the unattainable goal. This universal verdict that all have sinned has resulted in an undeniable status where you've missed the mark of God's righteousness. That status has created an impossible chasm between holy God and sinful man, creating the unattainable goal. Notice, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See that word glory? It's the word doxa. We got our word doxology, that short hymn of praise to God. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you know what that is, the Septuagint. The word Shekinah, you know what the Shekinah glory is. The word Shekinah is translated doxa. Uh, it refers the Shekinah to the, the brilliance and the brightness and the splendor of God Almighty. In Exodus 40, when that portable worship, um, portable worship center called the tabernacle was completed, the Shekinah filled the tabernacle. In uh, 1 Kings 8, when Solomon completes the temple, the, the permanent worship place, the Shekinah fills the temple. Likewise, in the New Testament, when the Lord Jesus is born, the Bible says we get a glimpse of his Shekinah, his doxa, same word. In Acts 7, when Stephen is being stoned to death, he sees the doxa, the Shekinah of God. In Acts 9, when Paul is on the Damascus road and he comes upon this brilliant light, so bright that it blanks out the noonday sun, he sees a picture of the doxa, the glory of the Shekinah of God. In Revelation 7, when the apostle John has an encounter with the risen, resurrected Lord, the one who lights heaven such that there's no need for the S-U-N because of the S-O-N and all of his brilliance, he sees a picture of the Shekinah of God. And Isaiah the prophet, when he gets a glimpse into the throne room of God and he sees the seraphim there saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He says, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of an unclean people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of the Shekinah of God. What does that mean? It means we're not suited for the presence of God in heaven. It means that on our own, we are unable to reach the glorious, wonderful, magnificent splendor of God Almighty. But there's good news. We'll look at it next time, but let me give you a sneak preview. Verse 24 being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He has already said in verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, we've just looked at the introduction. He's going to unfold it piece by piece by piece. But if you don't get anything else, don't miss this. Because all of us are sinners. We miss the mark. There's an impossible chasm, an unreachable need that on your own by anything you've done or might do can ever be bridged. But God has built an eternal bridge to the bloodstained cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is going to unfold for us in all of its power in the days ahead. Do you understand that this morning? 
Do you understand that there is a way of escape? There is a dance instructor who worked for the Arthur Murray Dance Studios, and one night he had been out all night, came back to his room, staggering, drunk as could be. He woke up the next morning at 11 o'clock only to hear the radio. And as soon as he heard the preacher, he heard these words. If in the next few moments you should die and find yourself before God and he should ask you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you say? That dance instructor said he was confounded by the question. And he said it was the first sermon he ever seriously listened to in his entire life. And he sat silently on the edge of his bed as he heard the pastor from the 10th Presbyterian Church, Donald Gray Barnhouse, preach the very passage of Scripture that we are examining today. And by the time the sermon was over, he knelt down by the foot of his bed and he trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. He'd received the the gift of God. He'd received forgiveness of sin. You know his name, some of you, D. James Kennedy the founder of Evangelism Explosion, who in turn helped tens of thousands of people in his lifetime to find Christ. By the way, if you should die today, and God were to ask you, why should I let you to my heaven? What would you say if God said, what right do you have to come into heaven? How would you respond to him? Listen, there is a great divide between heaven and earth between the Shekinah glory of God in the sinful fallen nature of man. And if you try to climb up some other way, friend, it will be an eternal disaster. We've seen another tragedy in our nation. And it is so sad to see so many broken-hearted people in that community. But friend, you cannot, you cannot disregard the laws of God. You cannot break the laws of God and be broken by them. And as a culture, as a nation, we have chosen to feed on sex and violence. That's why immorality is so widespread. And that's why violence is so widespread. The things that people were going to entertain themselves in on that movie were lived out in reality. God can no longer cancel the law of sowing and reaping than he can the law of gravity. And if we think it's going to get better, friend, we're deceived. You can't ignore God, wave your puny fist in His face, live a wicked, unrighteous life as a culture, and not see the fruit of it. We've only seen the start of it. And of course, if these are indeed the last of the last days, the Bible teaches it's not going to get better, as Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, it's going to get worse. And He said, I told you these things that you might not be alarmed. But let me ask you, if you were in that place and your life had been taken, would you know that heaven was your home? I hope so, pastor. I think so. Listen, God wants you to know so. And if you don't know, friend, you won't go. But you can know because it's not earned. It is received by faith through the work of Jesus Christ. And if you do know, Are you on your knees ever? Just ever? Oh God, give me an opportunity to share Christ this week. Give me an opportunity to make the gospel clear. Or are you so infatuated with the entertainments of this culture that your heart has become so blurred that you don't even think in those terms? No one comes to the Father 
but through the Son. If you have responded, pray with me this week that God would give you an opportunity to share it. Let's bow in prayer. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, no one leaving unless it's an emergency. I wonder how many here this morning can say, Pastor, I know that I am saved. There's been a time in my life when I trusted Jesus as my Lord, and my life changed. I've become a new person in Christ Jesus. I show the fruit of conversion, and the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I've become a child of God. Furthermore, I've openly, publicly confessed it. I've been baptized by immersion as the Bible commands me. And I am a member of a New Testament local church. If you can say that, would you raise your hand? Put them down. No one looking around. Maybe you couldn't say that because you're uncertain of where you would spend eternity. You'd hope you'd go to heaven, but you don't know. If the trumpet of God were to sound, you think you might, but you don't know for sure. Or maybe you're here and you've never obeyed Jesus Christ and have been baptized. Friend, if you've genuinely been saved and you've known it for a long time and you refuse to be baptized, you ought to be shaking in your boots this morning because you may have the pseudo-faith that the Bible speaks of because it says that if a person really understands baptism and refuses it, in the end, God will refuse them, not because you're saved by baptism, but that's our outward confession. And some of you here this morning have never followed through in this act of obedience, this confession of faith. Still others, if you're here and you need a church home, and you're saying in your heart, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. I know there's a decision I need to make, either to receive Christ, to obey Him in baptism, or to join a New Testament Bible-believing church. With no one looking, if that's you, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Raise your hand up high. Anybody else where I can see it? All right, put them down. Now, maybe you need to receive Christ. Would you, there in the quietness of your heart, on the basis of the blood redemption of Christ, on the basis of the one who took your place on that cross, who demonstrated his ability to do so when he was raised from the dead, would you in simple faith say, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me, I will obey you. I will be baptized as a believer. And I will become a part of a New Testament local church. Father, have mercy in our nation. Our sins are piling up into the heavens. As a people, we mock your name. Even as evangelical Christians, we deny it by the way we live. Help us, O oh God, to repent. May judgment begin with the household of faith. May those with a pseudo-faith replace it with genuine faith. And may you give us opportunity this week to find someone that you would bring into our path with whom we can share the love of Christ with. We ask it, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. To listen again to today's message entitled, Man's Biggest Problem, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. And of course, you can always order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478. And for today's program, just ask for program ROM13. Have you yet signed up for the Search the Scriptures Tour of Israel? May 11th through 22nd of next year, 
Pastor Carl will be leading a group of SDS listeners through the Holy Land. So many of the places you've only read about in the Bible will come alive as Dr. Brogy teaches about the various Old and New Testament sites that are found in God's chosen nation. Get all the details online at stsisraeltour.com and act quickly because the registration deadline is February 11th. The STS Israel Tour is paid for exclusively by those who choose to participate. Tomorrow we begin a look at God's way of salvation. Join us then as we search the scriptures.